Hello, it's Adam from The Tudor Chest here. A quick note before we get into the show to let you know that I also release a weekly subscriber-only podcast episode. For just £3.99 a month via Apple Podcasts or £5 per month via Patreon, which also comes with a whole host of other benefits, you can listen in ad-free to all of the episodes that I release. To sign up, search for The Tudor Chest in Apple Podcasts or sign up via patreon.com forward slash The Tudor Chest. Rivaled only by her mother, Anne Boleyn, when it comes to on-screen depictions, the story of Elizabeth I has long been a staple in both film and television, with portrayals of Elizabeth going as far back to the dawn of cinema when she was played by Sarah Bernhardt in the 1912 French silent film Les Amours de la Reine Elizabeth, right through to an altogether different interpretation of the Queen when she was played by the drag queen Cheddar Gorgeous during the fourth season of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. Of course, it is the more traditional performances that are the best known and the most beloved by fans of Tudor history across the world. The life of Elizabeth I was so colourful, so rich and so iconic that many of the greatest actresses to have ever lived have been cast to play her. From the legend of old Hollywood Betty Davis, to the acclaimed performances by Glenda Jackson, the magnificent Kate Blanchett, to true acting royalty in Dames Judi Dench, Helen Mirren and Vanessa Redgrave. Elizabeth I on screen has given us hours and hours of entertainment, but we must always remember that it is made for that reason entertainment, and as such, historical inaccuracies or embellishments of the truth are bound to occur. But which performances succeeded? which failed, and do any come close to painting a picture of the woman herself, the last and the greatest of the Tudor monarchs. Welcome back to the Tudor Chess podcast, Elizabeth I in film, a look back and review. If I were to go into every single depiction of Queen Elizabeth I in film and television, then I'm afraid to say that this podcast episode would need to be about six hours long, for she has been played 26 times in films and 45 times in television, not to mention the many depictions of her on stage and even in a few video games. I will therefore be concentrating on the portrayals of Elizabeth that are the most well known, and also for transparency, the ones that I've seen myself, as, after all, a big part of this episode is my own take on the performance and the way that Elizabeth's story is told. I must admit, rather shamefully, that I have never seen either of the performances of the great Betty Davis. The first, which came in 1939, in which she played Elizabeth in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, and the second in 1955 in The Virgin Queen, although this latter film is on YouTube in its entirety, so I plan to watch it very, very soon. The earliest performance of Elizabeth I that I have seen fully also happens to be the one that I think is the greatest and is viewed as the greatest, and that is Elizabeth R, the six-part miniseries released in 1971, starring the late, great Glenda Jackson. Elizabeth R aired from February to March 1971, and was a follow-on from the Six Wives of Henry VIII series that was released a year earlier. 
boasting a colossal acting ensemble, including Rob Hardy, who played Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and Rachel Kempson, the mother of Dame Vanessa Redgrave, who played Cat Ashley. This was, however, unequivocally Glenda Jackson's series. As I said a moment ago, it was six episodes long, and broadly speaking, each episode covers a decade of the Queen's life. Unlike films, which by the nature of the medium are restricted to a shorter runtime, a series has the luxury of time on its hands, and as such, this series did what no other depiction of Elizabeth up until this point, or in fact of any other Tudor at this point, had done, and enough screen time was given to take us through the vast majority of Elizabeth's life, with Glenda Jackson playing the role throughout. We therefore see Jackson go from playing the Queen in her early 20s right through to her death. Glenda Jackson was therefore required to go through extensive rounds of prosthetics to convincingly age her up as the years passed, as well as wearing an elaborate array of wigs. Such was her commitment to the role that she even shaved her head to create the extremely high forehead that was needed for the later episodes. The opening episode, The Lion's Cub, tells the story of the very end of the reign of Edward VI and the reign of Mary I, and the troubles that Elizabeth faced throughout this time. We see her imprisonment in the Tower of London, and then later her release once her sister, at the behest of the Queen's husband, Prince Philip of Spain, insists that Elizabeth be given her freedom. The episode is quite scathing, I suppose, of Mary and makes her seem foolish and miserable, where Elizabeth is shown to be intelligent, wise and spirited. It ends with Mary's death and the famous scene of Elizabeth being given her sister's ring safe in the knowledge that she is now queen. Episode 2 and 3 focus heavily on the many attempts to get Elizabeth married, with episode 2 taking quite a large piece of dramatic licence, in which a scene is played out where Elizabeth and her favourite, Robert Dudley, plan to meet in private and secretly marry, although this doesn't end up taking place, and the storyline itself is one which we can safely say never happened. Episode 4 focuses on the story of Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth's fear about executing her troublesome cousin, with episode 5 handling the Spanish Armada. The final episode, titled Sweet England's Pride, is set in the Queen's final years, covering the period in which Robert Devereux goes from being her favourite to an executed traitor before the Queen gives a final, rousing address to Parliament, dying shortly afterwards. The series truly is magnificent, and if anyone listening to this has not seen it, then I encourage you to track it down. For those in the UK, all six episodes are currently on BBC iPlayer. The production value is a touch wanting at times, something it shares with the earlier Six Wives series, but the costumes are perhaps the greatest and most accurate interpretation of Tudor dress that I've ever seen on screen. The gowns worn by Glenda Jackson in particular are completely out of this world, with many direct copies of some of the dresses the real Elizabeth wore in some of her most famous portraits. As I said, this is Glenda Jackson's series, and she chews up every scene that she's in with vigour and spit. She would win two Emmys for the role and also receive a BAFTA nomination. In addition to the accuracy of the costumes, many of Elizabeth's most well-known quotes or speeches also make it into the series, including a monologue she gives to her counsellors following the guilty verdict found against Mary Queen of Scots, which I will play for you now. As I came to the throne with the willing hearts of my subjects, so do I now, after 28 years' reign, perceive in you no diminution of goodwill. And though I find my life has been full, dangerously sought, yet still am I clear from malice. I have had good experience and trial of this world. I know what it is to be a sovereign, what to be a subject, what to have good neighbours and sometimes 
evil willers. I have found treason in trust, seen great benefits little regarded. In this late act of parliament, you lay a hard hand upon me, that I must give direction for my cousin's death, which cannot but be most grievous and an irksome burden to me. I, who in my time have pardoned so many rebels, winked at so many treasons, am now required to proceed thus against such a person. If I should say unto you that I mean not to grant your petition by my faith, I should say perhaps more than I mean. And if I say unto you that I mean to grant your petition, then I should tell you more than it is fit for you to know. Your judgments I condemn not. Neither do I mislike your reasons, but pray, Accept my thankfulness, excuse my doubtfulness, and take in good part my answer, answerless. As I say, the series truly is magnificent. It's a proper piece of landmark television and is, for many people, myself included, the greatest and the most important portrayal of Elizabeth I on screen. Glenda Jackson would reprise the role of Elizabeth a year later in the first major colour film about Mary Queen of Scots starring Vanessa Redgrave in the titular role. This was the second Tudor film made by the American director Hal B. Wallace, following the success of his infinitely more well-known 1969 biopic of Anne Boleyn, Anne of a Thousand Days, starring Jean-Vierre Bujold as Anne opposite Richard Burton as Henry VIII. Hal Wallace actually wanted Bujold to take on the role of Mary Queen of Scots, but she declined, not wishing, quite comically, to get pigeonholed into roles about queens who lost their heads. Unlike the Elizabeth R miniseries, the film focuses on a more contained time frame, although it does nonetheless span over 20 years. It was also working with much greater budget, which is most overtly seen in the absolutely incredible sets, which, to my mind, give us the most accurate and detailed depiction of Elizabeth's palaces that I've ever seen. The film may be called Mary Queen of Scots, but it's very much a two-hander between Jackson and Redgrave. In the very first scene of Elizabeth I in Mary Queen of Scots, Hal Wallace added a small touch, which is a callback to Anne of a Thousand Days, and I just absolutely loved it. In Anne of a Thousand Days, there is a scene where King Henry VIII is hosting a large banquet for much of the Tudor court right at the start of his attraction to Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn is very cold and aloof, annoyed that the king blocked her plans to marry Harry Percy. Mark Smeaton is seen performing a song called Farewell My Love, which we discover was a piece of music the king himself composed. When the king asks Anne, if some young man wrote this song for you, Anne, what would you say of it? She coolly replies, I would ask him how his wife liked it, your grace. And it is this exchange that is then revisited as an Easter egg, it's referred to as, as an Easter egg in film speak, not quite sure why, early on in Mary Queen of Scots. Elizabeth is being wooed by Robert Dudley aboard a boat gliding along a river. He is singing farewell my love to her and I will include the clip now to hear their conversation. I thought it might amuse you to hear it. Well, who wrote it? It said that your father composed it for your blessed mother, Anne Boleyn, before they were married. Oh. It is also said that when he asked her how she liked it, she counted by asking him how his wife liked it. <laughs> <laughs> my God, my mother had the courage of tears. <laughs> so you <laughs> I know it's silly, and it is entirely fictitious. As someone who loves both the films, I appreciated its inclusion. As the film focuses entirely on the relationship between Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots, it differs significantly from the series Elizabeth R. And so save 
the fact that it was Glenda Jackson in the same role, the two productions actually had very little in common. Of course, the acting is magnificent, and the best scenes are the ones which are entirely fictitious, as they are those where the two queens meet. This film highlights perhaps more than any other portrayal of Elizabeth and Mary just how different the two women were. Where Elizabeth leads with her head, Mary leads with her heart, something the former scolds the latter for throughout. There is no pretense here either. Elizabeth is shown as knowing that she's the better and more natural queen, but fears her cousin nonetheless, and is tortured by the prospect of authorising her execution. The film definitely depicts Mary as something of a wronged innocent, and attempts to make a side with Mary's plight. Clear pleasure, for example, is taken by the filmmakers in the end credits, where Elizabeth is seen on her throne, quietly sobbing, as text appears to tell us that in the end it was all for nothing for following Elizabeth's death. It was Mary's son who would inherit the English throne. A totally different portrayal of Elizabeth that is also quite well known came in the mid-1980s when she was played to comedic perfection by Miranda Richardson in series two of Blackadder. I'm not going to go into any detail about it here because the depiction is obviously not meant to be serious or scholarly or in any way accurate. It's just pure comedy and is utterly brilliant. I just wanted to acknowledge it before I moved into the, the more serious portrayals of Elizabeth I. In 1998, there would be two portrayals of Elizabeth I in film, and both would be nominated for Oscars at the 1999 award ceremony, and both would win BAFTAs, making what I think is a first in film history, with two actors playing the same role in different films, both winning acting awards at the same award ceremony. The first released would be the first of the two films starring Kate Blanchett as Elizabeth I, and was titled Elizabeth. Its sequel, Elizabeth the Golden Age, came along in 2007. Elizabeth was a major critical and commercial success, and in addition to Blanchett's nomination for Best Actress at the Oscars, the film would receive a further six nominations, including Best Picture, although only one won award for Best Makeup. An incredible ensemble cast, including Geoffrey Rush as Francis Walsingham, Joseph Fiennes as Robert Dudley, Cathy Burke as Queen Mary I, Richard Attenborough as William Cecil, and Sir John Gielgud in what would be his final big screen performance as Pope Pius V. Elizabeth is an excellent film, but is nonetheless filled with major inaccuracies, most prominently the suggestion that Robert Dudley was involved in plots against Elizabeth I, and also in Christopher Eccleston's depiction of Thomas Howard, who is the film's major villain. The movie also drew some well-made criticism for its very obvious anti-Catholic bias, most overtly in the depiction of Queen Mary I and her court. The acting with such a magnificent cast is of course incredible, and Blanchette was more than deserving of her BAFTA award, and frankly should have won the Oscar, which she lost instead to a sobbing Gwyneth Paltrow. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Elizabeth comes right at the end of the film, when the Queen makes the decision to utterly change her appearance and outlook on the way that she would govern England. Having grown in confidence and surviving plots to kill her, Elizabeth in effect divorces herself from the Elizabeth of the past, and instead recreates herself anew in what would become the staple depiction or look of Elizabeth, with whiter than white makeup, an elaborate array of chestnut red wigs and overly ostentatious gowns. Her women sob as they cut her natural hair very short and paint her face. She proclaims herself married to England and ascends the throne as the Virgin Queen. 
Kate Blanchett is able to dive deep into the woman below the costumes and shows us a character who, somewhat like her namesake Elizabeth II, has to shut down the real her in order to represent the divine. The film's sequel, Elizabeth the Golden Age, was met with a much more mixed critical response, which I never really understood, for the film was just as good, if not better, in my opinion, than the first Elizabeth. It attracted another stellar cast, with Kate Blanchett returning to the role, as did Geoffrey Rush as Francis Walsingham, and this time they were joined by Clive Owen as Walter Raleigh and Samantha Morton as Mary Queen of Scots. Golden Age, like the earlier film, has incredible sets and the costumes were also amazing. Kate Blanchett tears up the screen and delivers a truly incredible performance. The scene in which she cuts the Spanish ambassador down to size never fails to give me the chills. Go back to your rat hole. Tell Philip I fear neither him nor his priest nor his armies. Tell him if he wants to shake his little fist at us, we're ready to give him such a bite he'll wish he'd kept his hand in his pockets. You see a leaf fall, and you think you know which way the wind blows. There is a wind coming, madam, that will sweep away your pride. I too can command the wind, sir! I have a hurricane in me that will strip Spain bare if you dare to try me! We see the full range of Elizabeth's personality come across over these two films. Her terror at what may happen to her when she's imprisoned by her sister, her skills in managing court politics when evading marriage alliances, her horror at having to sanction the death of Mary Queen of Scots, her fury when her lady-in-waiting, Bess Throckmorton, beds and weds Walter Raleigh, and her vulnerability when she feels the weight of the crown almost too much to bear. It's a staggering performance and is very much how I think the real Elizabeth would have been. She was, after all, the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, two people not exactly known for being shrinking violets. The mixture of her strength, vulnerability and humour all add up to a characterisation of someone intrinsically human in a very difficult position. If you haven't seen either of these films, then I encourage you to watch them as soon as possible. The other film from 1998 that took the Oscars and the BAFTAs by storm was Shakespeare in Love. Like Elizabeth, it was a huge critical and commercial success, making nearly 300 million at the box office against a budget of just 25 million and being nominated for a whopping 13 Oscars, taking home seven, including Best Picture and Best Actress. It also featured a huge ensemble cast, including Joseph Fiennes, yes, the same man who starred in Elizabeth, as well as, yep, Geoffrey Rush, and then the aforementioned Gwyneth Paltrow. It also starred Colin Firth, Imelda Staunton, Ben Affleck, Simon Callow, Rupert Everett, and the grand dame of the British stage, Dame Judi Dench, in a supporting role as Elizabeth I. She appears for just seven minutes on screen, and even so, managed to frankly steal the whole film and went on to win the Academy Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Judi Dench herself acknowledged the brevity of her performance in her acceptance speech, saying of the Oscar statuette, for seven minutes of screen time, I feel I should only have one part of him. Now we're talking about Judi Dench here, one of the greatest actors on the planet, and so the performance is of course incredible as are the costumes, I just wish that Kate Blanchett had succeeded over Gwyneth Paltrow, which had been the outcome most pundits had gone with. Alas, it was not to be. 
Just like 1998, in 2005, two miniseries, Elizabeth I and The Virgin Queen, were released in fairly quick succession. They were initially scheduled to be released on the very same day, which would have been orcs to say the least, and so the second, The Virgin Queen, was delayed until two months later than its planned release date. The first and the better of the two was led by another of our great acting dames, Dame Helen Mirren, in a two-part miniseries, Elizabeth I. The drama covers, roughly speaking, the last two decades of the Queen's reign, and is a truly amazing show. I hate to sound like something of a parrot, but yes, again, it attracted a major cast with Jeremy Irons as Robert Dudley, Hugh Dancy as Robert Devereux, and Ian McDermott as William Cecil. A younger Eddie Redmayne, in one of his very first roles, also appears as Henry Risley, 3rd Earl of Southampton. Like Glenda Jackson before her, this is absolutely Helen Mirren's production. She gives an acting masterclass and is devastatingly good throughout. Hollywood clearly agreed, for she would win an Emmy, Golden Globe and Saga Award for her performance, although Jeremy Irons would also win in the Best Supporting Actor category at all three of these ceremonies as well. What I love about this production, and particularly Helen Mirren's performance, is that she does not hold back. You see the full gamut of Elizabeth's emotions. Hers is not the easiest Elizabeth to like. She has a furious temper, and at times is quite bloodthirsty, as heard here. Do you think because I'm slow to make war that I'm merciful? You think women are kinder than a man are more gentle? I'll tell you, gentlemen. We women have forgotten more about cruelty than you could ever remember. What we do not like is lies. Why should I not hang you as well as the fellow Catholics you've duped? And I tell you, sir, we'll hang them not a whip before we cut them open for a traitor's death. But she is also strong, yet vulnerable, wise, yet all too willing to enjoy flattery. And at times, she's quietly comical. In fact, I think this, Miranda Richardson aside, is the only performance of Elizabeth which does inject an element of comedy into it. One particular line that always makes me chuckle is when she says, What in God's name do we have in common with the Dutch? To which Robert Dudley responds, Our religious mom. With the Queen quipping back, The Dutch have no religion. They, they have cheese. <laughs> The series also gives us what I think is the most authentic telling of the relationship between Elizabeth and Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. It shows them as two proper grown-ups who were clearly very much in love, but held apart by the expected conventions of the day. Elizabeth's need for Lester in her life is a common thread throughout. With him by her side, she is able to cope with the pressures that her role imposes. Where Walsingham and Burley are shown as the men who run the country, it is in Lester that she finds joy, comfort and companionship. She cannot function properly without him. And that, I believe, would have been absolutely true of Elizabeth herself. The series is also, relatively speaking, quite accurate to history, although the allure of having Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots meet in person, something which never happened but has become a staple of Hollywood depictions of the two women, nonetheless crept into the series. On the subject of Mary Queen of Scots, this is also the only production discussed today which has her speaking with a French accent rather than a Scottish one, and is also unflinching in the brutality of the depiction of her execution. Where practically all dramas about the Tudor period cut away at the point that someone is beheaded, in this show we get a warts and all view of Mary's death, showing the axe strike into her neck, but failing to cut through cleanly, with Mary letting out a awful, guttural gasp of pain before the second strike kills her. 
We then see her head lifted into the air, only for it to part way with the wig that she wears and hit the floor, rolling around like a football, something that shockingly did actually happen. Now, whilst I said earlier that Glenda Jackson's portrayal of Elizabeth is perhaps the greatest, I must admit that I think Helen Mirren's is my personal favourite. She imbues the Queen with such a range of emotions and never fails to deliver every line she's given. It's an incredible series and I cannot recommend it enough. The second series released in 2005, as I said, was The Virgin Queen, a four-episode long drama which rather like Glenda Jackson's Elizabeth R, charted the entirety of Elizabeth I's reign, and as such has the actress Anne-Marie Duff in ever more elaborate hair, makeup and costume to convey the changes in the Queen's appearance as she goes from a young woman to an elderly Queen. The series is enjoyable and does not take huge leaps in historical accuracy. It also, perhaps more than any other depiction of Elizabeth I, has the spirit of her mother woven into the characterisation of Elizabeth. And I don't mean that literally, Anne Boleyn doesn't appear as a ghost or anything like that, but figuratively speaking, Anne Boleyn is a strong presence throughout. The decisions Elizabeth makes are often with her mother in mind, and unlike any other show, this version of Elizabeth is clearly majorly emotionally impacted by her mother's execution. This is the only production, for example, which includes The Checkers Ring, with Robert Cecil opening it following the Queen's death to reveal miniature portraits of Elizabeth and her mother within. A major storyline of the series is the relationship between Elizabeth and her favourite, Robert Dudley, played here by Tom Hardy in one of his earliest television roles. Anne-Marie Duff is great in the role of Elizabeth, but the series is formulaic and largely forgettable. One small touch I did enjoy was in the final episode when Elizabeth is at the end of her life. She is seen carrying a sword, jabbing out into the air at what she thinks are those trying to harm her. This is said to have actually been true of the real Elizabeth, who by the end was living with the constant threat of plots against her. In 2011, the film Anonymous was released, starring acting legend Dame Vanessa Redgrave, who as I discussed earlier played Mary Queen of Scots, who would this time jump into the role of Elizabeth I, playing the Queen in her final years, with her daughter, another big name, Julie Richardson, playing Elizabeth in her younger days. The role of Elizabeth is, however, a supporting one, for the film deals primarily with a highly fictionalised story of Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, and the conspiracy theory that he was actually the author of all of William Shakespeare's plays. Boasting a huge cast, incredible sets and amazing costumes, it is a film made in the vein of something of style over substance. Given that the central plot to the film is also, by and large, complete nonsense, it's difficult to take it seriously. One major historical inaccuracy, for example, is the inclusion of Elizabeth having several illegitimate children, one of which by the Earl of Oxford. The acting is of course incredible. When you've got talent on screen such as Vanessa Redgrave and Jolie Richardson, that's never in doubt. But the overall implausibility of the plot and the fact that its key storyline is so fictionalised results in it being a terribly forgettable film. In fact, I'm sure there's many listening to this that will go, hang on, I've never ever heard of that film before. And for that reason, there's not much I can say about it, except for the fact that it was also a major, major box office bomb, grossing just 15 million against a production budget of 30 million. In 2018, the subject of Mary Queen of Scots was revisited as another motion picture film, this time starring Saoirse Ronan in the lead role of Mary opposite Margot Robbie as Elizabeth I. 
The film was met with a mixed critical response, with many commenting negatively on the film's decision to use a colourblind casting process, which saw actors of Jamaican, African and Asian heritage in a film set in 16th century England. Gemma Chan, for example, played the role of Bess of Hardwick. It was, nonetheless, relatively successful at the box office. I've never been entirely sure if I enjoyed the film or not, which I suppose could be argued as proof that I didn't, although it did have some good moments and it was very well made. It just didn't really have a purpose to it. I didn't learn anything new from it. I wasn't really sure what the film was trying to do, I guess. Margot Robbie, as possibly the most beautiful woman in the world, was a bit of an odd choice to play a queen who, whilst magnificent, was not viewed as especially beautiful. And this is perhaps the reason why Margot Robbie's Elizabeth wears quite a prominent prosthetic nose to recreate the hooked, what we call Roman nose, that the real Elizabeth I had. The main problem with the film's interpretation of Elizabeth is that she comes across, at least to me, as quite weak-willed. She's strong when she needs to be, and is certainly smart, and she exhibits characteristics true of the real Elizabeth, most notably her intense vanity, but she spends much of the film acting somewhat lost. She has intense jealousy of Mary's success in giving birth to a son, and on several occasions exhibits clear distress that she's not been able to have a child of her own. In one particularly silly scene, for example, she spends days and days creating a bed of roses out of ribbons that she then has between her legs as if to say that this is the only way that she would ever give birth to something. It's just a really odd scene and, and jars a lot with what we expect from Elizabeth I. Although I suppose it could be argued that doing something different with the character in which she desperately does want to have a child is commendable in its bravery even though it doesn't feel particularly authentic. The film also follows the now well-trodden trope of depicting a fictitious scene in which Mary and Elizabeth meet. And this version is perhaps the strangest of those those fictitious meetings. It happens in what's what I can only describe as sort of like a woolen mill or a, a cotton factory, and the two women spend a few minutes trying to locate each other between hanging bedsheets. When they do eventually come face to face, Mary tries to implore Elizabeth into not listening to the men who regularly slander her, but soon changes tack and goes on to insult Elizabeth, referring to her as Mary's inferior and that if she kills her, she is killing her queen. It is this that then allows Elizabeth to see through Mary's veneer, telling her that her bravery and beauty are no reasons for jealousy, for they will be her downfall. The film ends, as to be expected, with Mary's execution, which plays out with a voiceover of Elizabeth I reading aloud the final letter that she sent to Mary. Where Margot Robbie's Elizabeth looks old, and as we know Elizabeth looked in her final days, Mary has not aged a day, which drew some confusion from people. Although my interpretation of this, and I think I'm right, is that it was Elizabeth's version of Mary that we're meant to be seeing on the scaffold, a Mary who age had not touched, and that she looked the same on the day of her execution as she did when Elizabeth met her in that woolen mill or wherever it was. So yeah, it's not the best, it's quite a silly film on the whole, and, and as I've discussed it here, I think I I have come to the realisation that I really wasn't that keen on it. The final performance of Elizabeth that I wanted to cover is the most recent, and it's that of Alicia von Rittberg in the 2022 miniseries Becoming Elizabeth. Becoming Elizabeth is the fourth series from Stars about a period of English history, the first three being the White Princess, the White Queen and the Spanish Princess. In my opinion, Becoming Elizabeth is the best of the bunch, although closely followed by the White Queen, the Spanish Princess can get in the bin. 
What I really enjoyed about Becoming Elizabeth was that it finally gave us something fresh. This wasn't about Elizabeth's reign, but the period which came before, the window of the Tudor dynasty that is so often overlooked, the reign of her brother, Edward VI. And that was what was really great about it, because it's not a period from the Tudor story that we see much of, so it was so refreshing to see characters like Edward VI and Lady Jane Grey playing a big role in a Tudor drama. It was also incredibly well made, with amazing set designs and the best costumes in a Tudor drama that I've seen since Elizabeth R, which was filmed all the way back in the 1970s. Particular attention was given, for example, to a gown worn by Alicia von Rittberg, which was a direct copy of the famous red and gold dress worn by Elizabeth in that very famous portrait of her as a teenager. Alas, what makes becoming Elizabeth so good is not the character of Elizabeth herself, but of the other sister, the one that we're repeatedly told that we have to hate, Mary, played to utter perfection by Romola Gari. In fact, I remember after the series finished, I was speaking to Claire Ridgway, the creator of The Anne Boleyn Files, and she said that the show should have been called Becoming Mary because of just how impressive her character is and the fact that Romola Gari entirely stole the show. This isn't to say that Alicia von Rittberg isn't good as Elizabeth. She's a great actress, but there were a couple of issues with her casting. Firstly, she is twice the age of the Elizabeth that she's meant to be portraying. For in the early episodes, Elizabeth is meant to be aged 14, and Alicia von Rittberg is 30 years old. The other issue is her accent. Alicia von Rittberg, as you may have surmised by her name, is German. And while she does a good job of getting the English accent down, there is an undeniable quality to her voice, which makes it clear that English is not her first language. And as such, it jars quite heavily in the scenes alongside Romola Gari and Oliver Zetterstrom, who played Edward VI. The show also takes the rather controversial decision to infer that Elizabeth and the man who for many was nothing more than an abuser, Thomas Seymour, had a fully consensual sexual relationship. The characterisations of Catherine Parr and Lady Jane Grey were also not my favourite, with Catherine Parr portrayed as cold and cruel and Jane Grey as a snob. Von Rittberg's work is good and she shows Elizabeth as a strong-minded and dedicated young woman, although she is at times fatally naive, although this does dissipate as she grows. The show also portrays Elizabeth as someone who treats her position as a princess as something of a hindrance. In one scene, for example, she scolds Lady Jane Grey, telling her, do you think I ever got what I wanted? To which Jane responds, you're a princess, with Elizabeth retorting by simply saying, exactly. What the show does best is definitely, definitely the relationship between the three royal siblings, and in particular, the relationship between Elizabeth and her elder sister Mary. Mary is set up as unquestionably the more politically astute of the two, although she is obviously considerably older and has seen much more of life. She is quick, however, to recognise Elizabeth's superior intellect. The series ends with the sisters being banished from court, as Lady Jane Grey arrives being primed as a suitable heir for Edward VI's throne. A second season was initially expected, but sadly those utter morons at Stars decided not to renew it, and so we will not get to see what came next, which I for one would have loved to have seen. The character of Elizabeth I will next appear as a supporting character in the upcoming film Firebrand, starring Alicia Vikander as Catherine Parr and Jude Law as Henry VIII. She will be played by an unknown actress, Junia Rees, and although there is no trailer for the film yet and no stills of Rees in the role have been released, a quick Google of Junia Rees tells you that she looks exactly right for the part, so I'm excited to see what she does with it. 
Earlier this week, on the 15th of January, it was the anniversary of the coronation of Elizabeth I, which is why I decided I wanted to do an episode about the last great Tudor monarch. Her many depictions in film and television are for many people their way into learning more about Elizabeth's story. What I'm always surprised by is when decisions are taken to greatly embellish or distort the truth, as if the stories of the Tudors were not dramatic enough as it is. As I have said from the start of the episode, the greatest depiction of Elizabeth has to be Glenda Jackson in the six-part miniseries Elizabeth R. It was proper landmark television, and Jackson's performance is so astounding that it really does stand the test of time. The Elizabeth films with Kate Blanchett are of course incredible, but I think my overall favourite depiction is Helen Mirren's Elizabeth I, purely from an entertainment and production perspective. Hers is a multi-layered tour de force performance, giving us such a range of emotions that she creates someone believable and human, which after all is what acting is all about. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As I said at the start, I do release a weekly bonus subscriber episode, so if you enjoyed this, perhaps you would like to support the channel and gain access to all other episodes. Just head to patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest or search for the podcast in Apple Podcasts. Thank you again and speak soon.